The scripture reading for this afternoon in connection with God's word is summarized in the second half of Lord's Day 6 is taken from Leviticus chapter 16. You'll be able to find that on page 130 of your pew Bible. Leviticus chapter 16. Now for a little bit of background to this, uh, to this chapter, just prior to this, the sons of Aaron who had been ordained to the priesthood, they had tried to come before the Lord to offer unauthorized fire. And if, if you read Leviticus 10, then it seems that at the time they had gotten themselves drunk and they had decided, you know what, we want to place some demands before the Lord. And they walk in carrying unauthorized fire, which is to say they, they had not followed the laws of, of, uh, th- that had been laid out, the laws that God had given his people in, in how to come before him. They had just thrown something together and they had marched right into the Holy of Holies. So the, the temple itself was up, broken up into the outer court, of course, and then you have the, the holy place, and then you have the holy of holies, the most holy place in which not everybody was allowed to, to enter into. And they had just marched right into there, and God had struck them down for what they had done. So this was what Aaron had had to face, the deaths of his, his two sons. They had defiled the name of the Lord as they came forward, and yet the Lord still had mercy on his people. It could have been at this time that the Lord would have said, we're gonna just, you know, you as a nation, we're done with you. But the Lord had decided still to have mercy on his people and to allow them still to come near to him, to the Holy of Holies. And this is what we find here in Leviticus 16. This is the beauty of the Day of Atonement. But the Lord decided to put to put laws around that. And we'll read that from Leviticus 16 today. The Lord, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come just at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which was on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body and he shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And here you see God once again emphasizing his holiness. They must come to him, but he emphasizes his holiness. He must change into completely different clothing, holy clothing, right down to his undergarments before he may come in. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. 
Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of this sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and shall bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So far, the word of God. Now we'll open to Lord's Day 6, the second half of Lord's Day 6. We covered the first half earlier, last uh, Sunday. We'll focus on the second half of Lord's Day 6, and you'll be able to find that on page 522, starting at question and answer 18. But who is that mediator who is, at the same time, is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. So far. 
beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Today is Thanksgiving Sunday, and we have so much to be thankful for. It's incredible. Peace in this country in which we live. We don't have to worry about people storming through those doors in the back and threatening to cut us down for what we believe in. You know, this can be something we often take for granted. Peace, and maybe not even peace from persecution, but peace in general. But some of us, especially those who are older and lived through World War II or who have come from perhaps less stable countries, can remind us that this isn't something to take lightly. We also are able to give thanks for a roof over our heads, food to eat, family to spend time with. And for us, specifically here in the Canadian Reformed Church in Owen Sound, and maybe for you guests in your own home churches as well, a church family that genuinely cares, that loves us, whom God has placed us in the midst of. These are all gifts from God. Now, on a side note, it's, it's interesting to ask those who don't believe who they're giving thanks to on Thanksgiving Day. That being said, we do know to whom we give thanks, that it's God to whom we give thanks. But realizing that it's God to whom we are giving thanks points us to the greater gift for which we give thanks today, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We didn't deserve anything, yet Christ died for us. He had to die so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You don't think you deserve it? That's okay because at the end of the day, we recognize that no one deserves it. In fact, God teaches us that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So no matter how bad you were, no matter how bad what you think might rule you out, if you turn to Christ in repentance and faith, leaving your sin behind and turning your life over to Jesus Christ, you will be given mercy. It's a gift, a free gift of grace. And this is one of the greatest things, this is the greatest thing that we can be thankful for today. But how do we know all this? How can we be certain about this fact that we are given this gift of salvation? We know this because God has promised it in his word. It's as simple as that. God has promised it in his word. And so, on top of all of that, we can thank God not only for sending his son, but for sending us the gospel by which we know that we can come to him through Jesus Christ. As our confessions point out, and as we just saw here in in question and answer 19, Scripture contains everything necessary for our salvation. We see this also in Belgic Confession Article 2. By the Bible, nothing is left out. It lets us know all that we need to be saved. There is no mystical addition here or there that we need. There is no feeling that we need. There's no secret knowledge. It's all right there. It's all right out in the open. What a reason for giving thanks. Now you may know this, and you may know it well, but as you were reading this Lord's Day, you may have noticed something. 
Sure, that's true for us. You're looking through this, this list of from where do you know this and you recognize, well, our Lord Jesus Christ has come for us. Sure, that's true for us. But what about what it said regarding the gospel in the Old Testament? What about the part where it talks about the gospel in the law? Was there actually good news for them there too? And here's a question. Does that tradi- transition to today? Can Jews still be saved by the works of the law? I proclaim to you God's word under this theme today, the gospel and the law. And first, we'll see the question legalism, then grace, longing, Christ, and finally, look at the fifth point, fulfillment. So the question of the gospel in the Old Testament. What happens when we as Christians read the Old Testament? We ourselves are quick to send a line to Christ. And this is good. This is appropriate. But what about the Jews? They didn't see Christ right away. And yet they got hope from the law. When we sang Psalm 119, we could see some of that coming through, right? They got hope from the law. Did they somehow see grace in this? That's a very good question to ask. You see, sometimes we get a picture of Judaism as a religion of legalism, and there's a good reason for this. Consider who are called the Jews in much of the New Testament, people who align themselves with the Pharisees. If you read through the Gospels, you read through the book of Acts, this is what springs to mind every time that you hear the words, the Jews. The Pharisees were described by Christ as legalists who measured out even a tenth of their spices to show the world that they were tithing everything to the Lord. So in our minds when we're reading about the Jews and Judaism, we often tie a direct line from the Jews to Pharisaism and legalism. In the second place, we quite often read in the New Testament about a group called the Judaizers. This was a group of Christians who held on to a particular false teaching. They demanded that the Gentiles hold to the law of Moses on top of obeying the teachings of Christ. But they were not called Judaizers because they were legalists, and Jews are legalists, therefore they are Jew-like and Judaizers. That's simply not the case. No, they were called Judaizers because they were trying basically to turn people into practicing Jews with a dash of Christ on top. They were legalists who happened to have a Jewish flavor added to their legalism. But even though these are the people that our minds jump to, the Pharisees and the Judaizers, that's simply not what Judaism was as a whole. Legalism was not something that was simply woven into the fabric of Judaism. There were many who understood God's grace. They understood the meaning of sacrifice. They were able to follow, to see the path that Scripture led them on by the mercy of God. And they recognized Christ as the Messiah in the New Testament, as the prophetic fulfillment of God's grace. They became Christians. Many Jews understood grace very clearly. And we know that they understood it because it comes across on every page of Scripture, the Old Testament 
is filled with grace and filled with the responses of God's people, among them the Jews, to that grace. Before we get into it in depth, let me define grace real briefly. Grace is undeserved favor. In the context of God's work, grace is undeserved divine favor. I don't deserve it, yet God gives it to me. Now, in light of that, let me introduce you to a few names. Jews who were not legalists, but recognized and prized the grace, this undeserved divine favor of God. The first place that we can look at is the first place that our catechism points us to, of course. The Holy Gospel, it says, we know this from the Holy Gospel which God first revealed in paradise. Already in Genesis 3 verse 15, we see the grace of God towards Adam and Eve at the time of the fall into sin. Any Jew who was looking back at this time, could see how gracious God was in not just striking them down on the spot, but not only allowing them to continue to live for a period of time, but also promising a Messiah who would come and save them, come and deliver them. Next, we see Abraham, who, not exactly a Jew himself, was the father of the Jewish nations. Genesis 17, verse 1. Now when Abraham, Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face. Here we see another Old Testament believer falling on his face because he knew that God chose him and God blessed him, not because he was worthy, but because God was gracious. God was merciful. King David, Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. The governor Nehemiah in chapter 2, verse 8 of his book. And the king granted my request because the hand, good hand of my God was on me. Again, it's not dealing with sin here, but still undeserved favor by the mercy of God. The prophet Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. The prophet Habakkuk, chapter 3 of his book. Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I fear, O Lord. Revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Recognizing God's righteous anger against sin, even his own people's and his own personal sin, and yet he calls on God according to his grace, not according to their works. So you see these various people in the Old Testament, these various Old Testament believers who had a very clear picture of God's grace. 
It was revealed first in paradise, later proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets. And then coming to our passage today, the description of the Day of Atonement. These Jews, looking back on their fellow brothers and sisters throughout history up to this point, they would see this passage as nothing more than the grace of God at work. This wasn't a question of legalism for them. This wasn't a question of, okay, I'll, I'll go through all of these steps and then I'll be okay. Of course, there might have been some among them who thought that way, just as there always are, even in Canadian Reformed circles. Even we ourselves might find that temptation in our own hearts from time to time. But if, if they truly understood what God was teaching them through this, what the priests were required to teach them year after year after year, then they themselves would look at the goat that's struggling there on the altar and say, I ought to be there for what I've done. They would look at that other goat that has all of the sins of the people placed upon it, being driven out into the wilderness and say, I'm the one who deserves to be driven out from among God's people. That should be me. Yet God, out of no merit of my own, in mercy, he bridges the gap where I could not. And he provides this sacrifice. And to hammer it even more home, you could see them sprinkling the blood seven times on the mercy seat. Seven times, a number of fullness. Once it was done, there was absolutely no more question that God had forgiven his people, that God had forgiven them of their transgressions. Out of his mercy, out of his grace. For the Jews, there was an incredible amount of grace in these Old Testament laws. In these Old Testament sacrifices. Because it showed them that though they were sinners, God provided a way. No other nation on earth had been given a way to be right with God. They and they alone were given this privilege. Not because they were better or more worthy, but because of God's mercy. And this brings us to our third point. Longing. So, what does this mean? It means, as we've read in question and answer 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism, that God introduced the gospel, the good news of his salvation by grace and not by works, to the Jews first. And many understood it. They praised God for his grace. But they saw that there was still something missing. God had not revealed his grace in its fullness yet. And you can sense a bit of this longing throughout the Old Testament, can't you? You read the histories and you can sense the frustration of those who groaned under the weight of the sins of the two Jewish nations, Israel and Judah. You can see it when you, you think of Moses, for example, as he stands as the mediator you can see it when you read the works of the prophets as they cry out to the Lord, how long will this continue? 
You can see it also when you read, for example, the prophecies of Isaiah. In chapter 53 of his book in particular, where he speaks of one who is coming, who will take the sins of the people on himself. There is a longing that is present throughout the Old Testament. A longing in which they are looking forward to something, and they can't quite put their finger on it. A longing and a hope that lies in store. This longing becomes especially apparent as it's brought to the fore in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 11. The hope and longing of our spiritual forefathers has a spotlight shone on it. Abraham, Moses, and others were waiting patiently for something more, we read, as we work our way through Hebrews 11. We read in verses 13 and following, these all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. Now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now you might say on reading that, hold on, they're just talking about a heavenly city. They're talking about longing for heaven and God gave it to them. That is true. But that's the same for the chain of believers who went before us leading from them to the present day, isn't it? Because it is someone who made it possible for them. Someone who put it in their grasp and someone who has put it in our grasp. Where does this chain point to right after the hall of believers? You hear one person after another described throughout Hebrews chapter 11, and then we hit Hebrews 12 verse 1, where it points to Jesus Christ. And so they say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. In view of everything that came before, now let us fix our eyes on Jesus, because Jesus was the longing Fulfilled. And this brings us to our fourth point. The letter of the Hebrews points to Jesus as the summation, the pinnacle of Old Testament faith. Even though he was not there, he was there. He was the substance of their faith, he was the fulfillment, its completion. In placing your hope in the shadows of the Old Testament figures of the law and of people who prefigured him, of prophecy about him and so much more, they were looking ahead at what was coming and they were placing their hope in Jesus. You can see even more clearly how early Christian Jews understood this in the Jewish church leader Paul's commentary on Israel's wanderings in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, through Paul, the Holy Spirit writes there, the Jews, as they were traveling through the desert on their way to the promised land, they all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ was there. He was present in a real way, even for them in the Old Testament as the fulfillment 
of their hope. So there was a sense of hope in something greater than what was just immediately in front of their eyes. There was a sense, however small, of understanding that the images in front of them pointed to a greater reality. Yes, there would be those who would just go through the motions as though killing an animal would actually take away their sin and leave it at that. They would, they would sin and they would think, oh boy, I, I better do something about that and then kill the animal and then carry on with life. But there were also those who looked beyond the simple actions to the God who had given them those actions, given them those rituals, those laws to go through. They looked to the grace of the God who gave them those laws as a symbol of his bridging the gap made by sin between us and him. And Hebrews 11 proves this to us. Generation on generation of Old Testament believers, most of them Jews, who fixed their eyes on the grace of God, who gave them these pictures of a promised land, of sacrifices, of a priesthood that intervened when they failed. And so much more. And this is what our catechism today points us to as well. And then in Hebrews 12, as we saw it, and the direction that our catechism today points us to as well, that through those things, they all had their eyes fixed on Christ who was there. So when we're working our way through these Old Testament laws, we're reading our way through them, we we might read Leviticus chapter 16 as well. And, and we're working through it section by section and there's a goat and there's, there's blood being sprinkled and this and that. Let's, let's not look at it like it's useless. A bunch of rules that are no longer necessary for those who are now under grace. You know, some teachers, they, they teach that the days for looking at the Old Testament are over. They believe that we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New. The Old Testament can be offensive, they say. And they even have in mind times like this when it speaks of the death of the, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu in 16 verse 1. And so it needs to be removed. But that's missing the grace in the Old Testament. Yes, there are certain passages that many will struggle with. There are events and concepts that some people might even find barbaric from their modern Western point of view today. That, however, is a reason to seek understanding about those things, not to remove the Old Testament. It's a reason to seek the grace that is found in the Old Testament, grace as the Jews would have seen it. Grace, as the Jews delighted in it. And then, on the heels of that, because it's inseparably joined to him, to look to Christ. Because once you see grace in the Old Testament, it's impossible not to see Christ. Because he is there. It all pointed to him, and he is there. That brings us to our final point. So in light of all of that, the grace and the longing that's expressed, we come to that final question, what about modern day Judaism? If they look 
towards these same pictures of grace as we do, can they still be saved? Could we ourselves return to the sacrifices if the temple was ever rebuilt in Israel? No, for the days of sacrifices are done. They've served their purposes. After all, no goat, as we find in Leviticus, in itself can actually bear the sin of mankind. Hebrews 10 verse 1, For the law can never with these sacrifices make those who approach perfect. Hebrews 10 verse 4, It's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. It was man that sinned, so man had to pay for sin. And that's what we confessed in Lord's Day 6, the first question and answer there that we looked at last week. Man sinned, so man had to pay for sin. But now Christ has come in the form of a man to take all our sins on himself. He was our sacrificial lamb, fully man and able to pay for our sins. Romans 5, verses 15 to 17. Just as in the Old Testament, he is the only way, the truth, and the life for all who believe. But we need to focus on that. John 14, verse 6, that he is the only way, the truth, and the life for those who believe. To hold on to the old forms of the law is to hold to a shadow. Again, Hebrews 10, verse 1. When Christ himself is there. And to, to, to hold on to that is like having someone try to rescue you from the ocean. And yet stubbornly insisting on trying to climb into the shadow that lies beside the boat. The shadow doesn't save. The boat does. The shadow can give you hope and assurance that the boat is right nearby. But it's the boat that saves. Christ has come. Christ has declared that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And all who come to him will be saved. So in conclusion, beloved, let's reflect on these last two things. First, let us see the gospel that is already there in the Old Testament. And let us, let us marvel for it. We saw the value that it has for them how much more is, can we see the richness of it today in Christ Jesus? Let's treasure that and really strive to make the Old Testament our own just as we do with the rest of the Gospels, the New Testament letters, just as we do with the narrative history of the life of Christ. It's important because we know that God has sent our Lord Jesus Christ from the Holy Gospel which God first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed through the patriarchs and the prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally he had it fulfilled through his only son. Let the center of our focus be on Christ. On dwelling in Christ and abiding in him. And let us give thanks that he has been given to us as a savior and that through him we have been given his word that directs our hearts to him. Amen.